time. So I'd like to try to get up to the point where the Knights uh, wrestle with him and today and then next week plan to finish Murder of the Cathedral and start Dostoevsky. So next week, um, I'll, what I'll do is do a general background, the sort of thing that I always do, just to lay out some things. I, what I'm going to actually do is go back to the, um, um, <clears throat> the, the time of the Roman Empire when the popes took over. If you, if you got those sheets that I gave you when we did Dante, when we, uh, when we did Dante and also when we did Dante and Milton, I give you those little thumbnails, brief sketches of Roman history. <clears throat> if you go back to that, I think it was that one page thumbnail sketch of history and review it, it would be good. I want to go back to what happened with Rome and Constantinople and then go forward to Russia because um, what happened with Russia is really major. Um, so it'll be just a general background, and, and, and following my practices, what I'd like to do is just read from the opening chapters just to get us going. So, and one, one serious bit of counsel, serious bit of counsel. I saw Gita last night <coughs> at the gym, and she was rolling her eyes and, and taking copious notes, and I said, don't, don't, don't. Um, she's getting lost with names. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that some names have multiple names, so if you're reading, it's so easy to get confused. And if, if you're confused, the tendency is, I don't want to be confused, go to the, go to the uh, online, look at you know, characters. I would suggest that you go online and look at a, um, a study guide. I think, I'm guessing Sparknotes has it, I don't know. Or look at uh, Wikipedia, <coughs> Brothers Karamazov, just to get the characters. And then stop. So here's my suggestion. I don't, don't this is going to run against everything you guys probably do. It's the same suggestion I made with the Iliad. When you, re, when you start the Iliad and you read that book for the first time, there is no way, in, unless you've got a photographic memory, there's no way you're going to remember all the names. A person dies every other page. And Homer never describes a death without naming the person. You know that, how important that is for Homer. Every person has to be named because that's who he is. Imagine a writer treating Afghanistan war, both sides, America and Afghanistan, oh say, and naming all the characters. Who would do it? If Americans would do it, they'd do it the same way they did cowboy and Indian movies. All the white guys or cowboys would be known and the Indians would never be named. Homer would never, never let that happen because he thought when you named a person, when he fulfilled his destiny, when he died, it was important to honor him, to name him. So when you read the book, <coughs> fight against the tendency to want to know everything, because I just think that tendency on our modern age is crippling. Because if you do, you're going to be stopping every two pages, going somewhere, and you'll be interrupting the narrative. You'll just break the narrative up. Trust yourself and trust the book and know that the, the really important people will keep coming back. You know, just try to move ahead with your reading because otherwise it'll just, it'll take you forever. There are too many names and the names themselves have different forms. So, um, But you might think about going online and looking at a study guide, Sparknotes or Wikipedia or something, or um, there's another one, Grade something, 
I can't remember the name of it. But you'll get a study guide, or I mean a character list, and that should help. You know. There's one at the beginning of the book, too. There's yeah. a page that lists uh, different variations of the names. Oh, so good. For all the characters. Good, good. Yeah. Enjoy the story. Um, Fred and Francis said they saw a movie of it with Yul Brenner and William Shatner. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it, but it's it's often it's good to get a movie because you get the whole story, it, and you know how true this is by now. If you have the whole in you and go back and read the parts, the parts are going to speak. They're going to say so much more to you than the first time you read it when you don't know the whole. You, you can never read a book well the first time. You just can't. <coughs> So, okay, I think that's it. We'll start, we'll finish uh, Murder next week and start um, Dostoevsky's Brothers. Did you start these already? Right. Um, okay, any, any prayer requests? Yes, I'd like to pray for my son Mark. He hurt his foot and it's nothing broken, but he's going to be in a boot for like six to eight weeks. Mm, that's hard. Better a boot than br that's you know, true. That's other true. things that we can, at least um, we have a leg to put a boot on. <coughs> I, I met a woman um, here yesterday after Mass and her husband has been in a vegetative state for several months. His name is Jerome, if we could pray for him. Jerome, sure. Sure. Um, Bev, your son's name is Mark. Mark, right. Mark In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our lives with you, um, the gift of our lives from you, and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, for your words to us. Um, Father's sermon was a reminder that in our world, this is so, it so lines up with Murder in the Cathedral, so lines up. Um, the world wants nothing but excellence. The world is under sin and doesn't know it. Um, and um, people are replaceable. So um, people strive for success, for excellence. Um, people become rivals to each other and people become replaceable. In your kingdom they're not. Um, you called on people who <laughs> probably would have re been rejected in a business world and drew them to you so that they could bring to us another order, very different from our own. Um, help us to do that. Um, the reading so often takes us there. It makes us aware of so much more beyond our world. Um, give us strength to um, do your will. Um, and in this time left, we're all reaching an age. Um, strengthen us in, in our efforts to make our wills good, to be ready um, to meet you. I ask for a blessing on Mark. Um, I don't know him, but um, all of us can grow in patience. So during this trial, when a boot is going to slow him down, let him see it as a grace that he can become more patient. If only all of us could wear a boot more often. Um, um, I don't think any of us couldn't improve if we became more patient. So, 
and sorry, brother, and he was Jerome. 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 Um, don't know what to say. Um, wake this man from his slumber, Jerome. Um, it sounds like a despair. I don't. I don't know. Um, but um, open his heart um, to find a purpose to move. Um, whatever's going on with him. And this is his wife who told you? Yes, he, they were in Ireland on vacation when he had several strokes. Strokes. Oh, so it's, it's not just psychological, it's physical. Oh, yeah. Oh. Goodness. Heal him. Um, heal him. And um, let the hardship of his wife strengthen her and her faith. Um, surround him with your protection. Heal him. Help him to recover um, from his strokes. Um, help him, please, to recover. Um, I ask a blessing for everybody in the class, for whatever burdens um, any of us is carrying, um, to remember what we've been learning so often. There is no bad fortune. Um, the church asks us to be glad. Every difficulty is, is, comes to us as a test to see how strong our faith is, whether we really do trust in you. Um, let that trust not be act or passive. Let it be the beginning of a different way of acting for every one of us so that we bring more of you to what we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, can you turn to... I'm going to do Marina very quickly and then Simeon. Um, you remember that the backstories for Marina are um, Shakespeare's Winter's Tale and Pericles, directly per Pericles, but remember in Winter's Tale, um, Leontes does a number of things that um, paralyzes his regime. He loses his son, he sends his daughter to her death, what he thinks will be her death, and he thinks he loses his queen. The, the regime is devastated. His daughter is raised in, in Boethia's realm. And, and you remember that eventually they're reunited. So it's a, it's, it's a, to me it's the most perfect realization of a paradisal moment that I've known that the things that we lose will be returned uh, in a glory. Um, and the, the part of the beauty of that is um, in here, clearly, Leontes is going to value Hermione more because he thinks he's lost her and is responsible for her death. And I think it's got to be like that in heaven, that um, things will be far more beautiful because at that point we'll know we, we never deserve them in the first place. You know, we always put people down, because, or so often we put people down because we think we deserve better than that. You know, in our pride, we put people down or hate or um, give, give ourselves reasons for hating people. We're asked to love even our enemies and I think our pride so often prevents us from doing that because we think we deserve better. In this paradisal moment everything's given back and it, I think it's one of those moments where you realize um, his gratitude is going to be all the greater because he realizes he lost her. He didn't, um, he, he didn't, he didn't deserve this. It's given freely, 
as it would be in as we'll be in heaven. <coughs> so all the things we lost will be returned. But I don't be I, there won't be that pride in the way. Everybody will be grateful um, because they will they will have received this extraordinary gift. All the things they lose. So. Winter's Tale is about this reunion between Leontes and his wife, Hermione, and between Leontes and uh, uh, Perdita. And Pericles picks up the same thing in a very different way. Um, and remember towards the end of Pericles, Pericles hears the music of the spheres and is, experiences this infinite rest, hearing that harmony of God's order. So it's an extraordinary um, reconciliation, a moment of regeneration. And I read those lines where Pericles looks at his daughter and says, some, Thou thou that begettest me, begettest me who did thee beget, the, you've given me a new life, the one who gave you life initially. That there's this moment of regeneration, a rebirth in a father when he looks at his daughter when he fully expected never to see her again. Um, <coughs> remember the the head note, the epigraph to Marina, is the line taken from Seneca's work on um, Heracles, Hercules. Um, it's the line when, that Hercules speaks when he wakes up from his dream and discovers he's killed his children and his wife. So Eliot's asking us to say two things that are opposite next to each other. Um, Pericles wakes up from this dream and sees his daughter, and he has that line, remember, says, give me a gash, lest I be overwhelmed by this sea of grace, that the joy is so extraordinary, it's unbelievable. And so in the poem Marina, and even a little bit in Simeon, there's this combination of um, joy and dread that in these conversion moments, they're overwhelming because nothing... <coughs> you have no roadmaps to them. Um, you may know them in your head, but having them is a completely different thing. When you're in that moment, um, unlike anything else you've ever experienced in the world, so you, you feel like you're on the verge of this extraordinary, overwhelming joy, and you carry some dread because it is so unfamiliar. Nothing in your life prepares you for it. So there's this combination of nervousness or anxiousness and this great hopefulness, this glimpse of joy, okay? So two very different works. Hercules wakes up to realize he's killed his children and wife, and Pericles wakes up to this extraordinary miracle, okay? Simeon's in the same place because, and you all know who Simeon. If you, if you don't, I put the biblical passages from Luke on the back. <clears throat> who, does he, who knows who, who Simeon? Jeannie. He was a holy man in the temple when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to be um, dedicated as an infant. Mm -hmm. He had been waiting all his life oh, yeah. to see the Messiah. Was he blind? No. He wasn't blind? <laughs> it's offering the child to God. It's the presentation in the temple. He waited all his life with the understanding that um, the Messiah would come, the long-awaited, and, and he sees him and he says, now, how did you put it down my... May let your servant go in peace, yeah. for my eyes have seen your salvation. Good, yeah. good. 
So imagine, he's Jewish, been waiting for the Messiah his whole life, and, and he's, he's the one to see him in the temple. It's one of those miraculous moments because how does he know? And yet he knows this is, this is God, this is the Messiah he's been waited for. And he says, now I can go in peace, except he, and, but he said there's that, <coughs> the dark line that he has. Um, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through my own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A lot of dark things are going to emerge with Christ's advent. Set for the fall and rising again of many. So, there's a, again, this mixed response, this fusion of a great joy and a dread. His soul is going to be revealed. Um, um, it's going to go against um, many in Israel for the fall. It prepares for the fall. And we know that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You know? So, T.S. Eliot's Marina. Let's see, and you remember, he, he's on a boat. There's a journey. It's an old boat. It's breaking down. He carries this sense of some great joy. It's like the middle of a conversion. And there are these brief meditations on those things which will fail it. The four forms of death, the tooth of the dog, the hummingbird, the contentment, you know, the, the lusts and sensations, the sensuality of the animals. And all of these become as nothing um, because of this grace that's entered the world and has changed the way he sees things. I put it to you a number of times when we've gotten together. Um, I remember doing this when we did the Protestant Catholic. When you take communion, when we take communion, where are we? You know, to even ask that question. We're walking through the church halls, we're going out to the parking lot, we're talking about the reading or something, but where are we? Christ is in us. Christ is in us. If he's in us, it means we are part of his kingdom. The apophatic, there it is again. Are we even aware that we're of that kingdom? That we're surrounded by mysteries, um, in some ways protected by them, and yet called to dangers? Because being in that kingdom um, involves real risks. So, so where are we? Where are we when we take the Eucharist? This is a poem like that. He's got this other world, and it's changing the way he perceives this one. It's between, moving towards something. What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, what islands, what water lapping the bow, and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, O oh my daughter. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who's, who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death, are become insubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the wood song fog, by this grace dissolved in place. What is this face less clear and clear, pulse in the arm less strong and stronger, given or lent, 
more distant than stars and nearer than the eye, whispers and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the waters meet. Bowsprit cracked with ice and paint, cracked with heat. I made this, I have forgotten and remember. The rigging weak and the canvas rotten between one June and another September made this unknowing, half-conscious, unknown, my own. The garbered straight leaks, the seams need caulking, this form, this face, this life, living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken, the awakened lips parted, the hope, the new ships. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers, and wood thrush calling through the fog, my daughter. Song for Simeon. Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming and bold, and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season is made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners, wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the four poor, have taken and given honor and ease. There went never any rejected from my door. Who shall remember my house? Where shall my children's children when the time of sorrow is come? They will take to the goat's path and the fog's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. Before the time of cords and scourges and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountain of desolation, before the certain hour of maternal sorrow, now at this birth season of decease, let the infant, still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has eighty years and no tomorrow. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation with glory and derision, light upon light, mounting the saint's stair. Not for me the martyrdom, <coughs> the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace, and a sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the death of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. Okay, um, let's see if I can do this quickly. Um, remember I said that <coughs> Eliot's poetry really marks modernity in a distinct way. The First World War is over. Um, Western civilization has entered into a new period. It's a, it's a war like, unlike any that had taken place before it. Um, there's a general um, despair. Um, Germany has to rebuild itself after the war. Um, um, and it had to live with the guilt of the sins, so Europe is broken. Um, uh, Darwin has produced um, Origin of the Species, and Freud has produced the introductory lectures, and both of them um, 
man's free will has been denied. So it's a radical change in the way we look at human beings. Um, we don't have free will, we're product of forces that we don't understand, uh, whether they're evolutionary or sexual, you know, in either case. So it's a, it's a radically different world. Um, jo or Elliot writes um, the love song of Jafford Prufrock. I think we've done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then The Wasteland, which we haven't done, I should do it. Um, we did that one. The Wasteland! Yes. <coughs> Honestly. See, don't tell me anything more and expect me to remember it. Should be no surprise to you guys anymore. Huh? You don't remember it? I don't either. I don't remember doing it. We did not do that. Yes, we did. Wasteland. Trust me, we did it. There's the diplomat. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. In 1922, he did The Wasteland, and it, it really did, it was a signature poem. It marked the beginning of uh, modernity in a, in a much broader way than Prufrock did, because what he shows us in The Wasteland is that the modern city is, a, is the sterile city. It's like what we get a glimpse of in uh, Merchant of Venice. But it's worse. Um, there's no Belmont in that poem. It, it seems sterile. Although, interestingly, it ends with um, Hindu um, Indian gods thundering as if it's signaling rain. Because the land right now is sterile. There's no rain. Everything's barren. Um, sex is just sex. We've lost a traditional understanding of a man. The intellectuals flocked to Eliot because he, he presented a picture that was so um, um, consistent with their own cynical view of the world, that the world is not a good place. They loved him. He was so, so bright, so articulate. And then you know, several years later, converted, returned to his faith, converted to Christianity, and the intellectual world just left him. Um, these poems, um, Marina and Simeon, were written about this time, and then he writes Murder of the Cathedral. And something's emerging at that time, particularly between Eliot and James Joyce, who's the other great, great artist of the time. Both of them, particularly through Joyce, realized that if there was going to be any order given, any, if there was going to be any possible source of order in the modern world, it had to come from the past. So both of them turned back to the past for models that were all mythic. Joyce took um, the Odyssey, and he made his book Ulysses based on that. So every episode in Homer's The Odyssey um, is the basis for every chapter in Joyce's book. It's absolutely modern. It's set in, in Joyce, and it, it, Dublin is taken off the city, the real city, into the page. It's that literal. It takes place in 12 hours, and it follows this man named Bloom, who's Jewish, who stands outside this Catholic world, um, going about it, eating liver, going to the toilet, was banned in America because I think of the toilet scene because it was outrageous that anybody should be described as going to the toilet, you know, little things like that. And I think there's a scene late in the movie where he masturbates. He's watching, we don't get a description of it, but, but um, sparklers go off when he's watching this young girl on a beach. And so there's sort of, it, it, it's, a, it's an, actually, I think it's an infernal vision. It shows Dublin as the infernal city, as the equivalent of what Dante did with Florence in the 13th century. But both of them saw that, that man had to find an order of principle because the modern world had been left in chaos, that there was no source of meaning. Take God out of the picture and 
um, you've got a meaningless world. So everywhere in his writing, here, Marina, song for Simeon, song of Simeon. You know, they both look back to the Bible, to Shakespeare. It'll be true of all of Eliot's poetry. Um, so in Murder of the Cathedral, there, there are echoes, allusions to Aeschylus's um, trilogy, the Oresteia, and the, the curse that's on the house of Atreus, on Agamemnon's house. Um, Beckett and Henry II were dear friends when they were kids, absolutely close friends. Um, they stayed close um, through the period when, um, when Henry elect or chose Beckett as Chancellor for England. He was an effective Chancellor, did um, amazing work in every aspect of political life. But um, he was chosen to be Archbishop, and when he was made Archbishop, he resigned as Chancellor, and that was the beginning of the breach between the two men because Henry wanted Beckett to hold both, both positions because he thought he'd have more control over the church if he did. And there's that schism again. Um, um, Beckett resigned and he had to follow his conscience and God and that put him at odds. Henry wanted to have um, the power to try um, criminal cases involving clerics and um, the custom had always been for the popes to do it. So there was a um, serious conflict between Henry and the pope. Um, Beckett fled to France and the pope did everything he could to, to, write, to reconcile the two men. They did, and, and, um, or seeming, they seemed to have reconciled, they really didn't. Beckett returns home and you know um, he's killed. Um, a couple of formal things about the poem. You know from your reading of it that it's very formal. It's not a colloquial language at all. And, and I would say if you, if you, it's, it's very hard to read the lines and not feel that there's something like an oracular spirit to them as if we're in the presence of something holy. There's nothing colloquial, it's not glib, it's not light, it's formal, it's grave, there's a spirit of gravitas, something heavy. The chorus <coughs> keeps speaking about something coming. The, the priests are in dread. Um, something's about to happen. Um, you, you can't read any line even at the beginning without feeling there's something heavy. Um, something's going to happen. Um, and Bob Beckett knew that. Did he know that? Yeah, I I think he did, Linda. I mean, I I, I don't know the I don't I haven't read the biography, and I I only know a little bit about the history. And my sense is he did know it, and certainly the play makes that clear. He comes back knowing that he might be martyred. No, okay. Yeah. He um, returned with that knowledge. Probably. I mean, I I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to answer that with any kind of authority because I, I, I've not read a biography on him and I can't say definitively, but that's the general sense I get from what I do know. Uh, it's certainly the sense we get from the play. <clears throat> and Eliot would have been pretty accurate. Everything, there's, everything here is so faithful to what I do know about Beckett. Um, and the other thing that I just wanted to remind you of is, is remember the play's divided into two parts, the first part an interlude and then a second part, and the second part is divided into two. Um, they both take, both parts take place in the Archbishop Hall, um, and the very last part takes place in the cathedral, so he goes into the cathedral. And in some ways it, 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 it calls to mind similarities with the Mass, 
because it's in the cathedral after his homily that he's sacrificed. And, and when we talk about it today, I'll, I'll make the point, I think you probably already sense it. What he does makes him one with Christ in the sacrifice. That's what's so frightening about the whole thing. It's really interesting. Over and over and over again, we keep being made aware that everybody's aware of an impending death. The Chorus says, I've seen death, I've seen death, I've seen death. Death is part of their life. And yet you can't read it without feeling something worse than death is coming. And we have to ask why. Um, but everything, everything moves towards the sacrifice of the Mass in the cathedral. And, and Beckett is actually sacrificed. He's a martyr. But his sermon on, uh, that sermon on Christmas Day is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're, yeah we're gonna start with that two time. Um, one of the things I asked everybody to keep in mind is that we should read it like a palimpsest. Remember, a palimpsest is a sheet that keeps getting rubbed off, so you replace it with new writing, a new script, a new text. <coughs> but it, it implies all the other texts that came before it, so it's impossible to read this play without being aware of other, other subtexts, other texts beneath it, particularly the Bible, but Aeschylus', Aeschylus trilogy. Hamlet, I'm going to suggest Hamlet in some places, that there's all sorts of other texts that are buried underneath <coughs> this one. Um, <coughs> and it raises the question how we see time. It's going to be one of the major concerns today. If the surface, the palimpsest, is now, and it contains all those other times. And the past is one with the present. How do, how do we look at time? Um, one of Eliot's most famous principles is we, he said, all literature forms um, a simultaneous body. There's a simultaneity that's formed when all the works are put together. And he said it's absolutely important to read that way. You can't just put things in the past because they form this body of works. You can't understand them without putting in relation with others. Um, it, I, that's so important. People used to read, people used to present hist or literature in a historical context. So the approach was historical. You'd read the Romantics in the 19th century. You read Dickens in 19th century, right? I mean, um, it's, it's almost as if it's assumed that it's a kind of history. We all know that literature is not history. And when you start reading texts together in their own tradition, you, you come up with a very different way of looking at time. Uh, these are not works of history. They're products of historical moments, but they're showing something else and something timeless. Generally, in the really great works of art, there's something timeless in them. It's a different way of reading. Okay, let's, let's go. I want to go back to the end of part one just to pick up, and then we'll go forward. Um, Go back to those lines that we spent so much time on. I, I, it's just to me, they're so important. And, um, on page 40, remember Thomas is um, faced with the four tempters, and you remember what they are. Um, the first one um, presented him with the temptations of worldly goods, pleasure, wealth, you know, food, a good day. The second was um, um, an appeal to a political realm, to, to return to the, the world that um, he supervised when he was chancellor. 
The next one was similar, um, but it was an appeal to Beckett to get the uh, authority of the Pope behind what he was doing so that, so that through Beckett, greater limitations would be put on the king and the lords so that this guy could profit. He looked at himself as an Englishman and under the thumb of the lords and the king, and he thought if Beckett could um, be successful in putting limits on the king and the barons, these other people could thrive. And that you know the last one was a more direct appeal to something inside Beckett, this deep, probably half, half conscious, half unconscious desire to be a martyr. That when you look, when any person looks at himself and in an attempt to understand his motives, and I'm assuming everybody's done this and knows it, when any of us goes into the interior, we're going into an obscurity because none of us can read the emotions very well. I think men are, I think women are probably a little bit more sensitive. Um, um, not, not always, but, and I think men less, but, but we're going into Beckett's interior and having to deal with really deep motives. And, and the last, most important and the most dangerous are actually seeking out a martyr, to, to, to want to be a martyr. And then he comes to the conclusion that um, the danger he faces doing the right thing for the wrong reason. That is, he can go through with this for his own pride. So the danger he's facing is trying to get rid of his own ego. Um, so let's go back to that, that section, page 40. And remember, I, I thought Jay hit it really well last. So many of these lines make us aware of the apophatic. There's something more going on. Beckett knows it, the poet knows it, so the way he <coughs> frames the lines generally bring us between two conditions, knowing and not knowing. Li remember, the chorus keeps saying living and not living. That There's this in-between realm um, that defines practically everybody in, in some way or another. The tempter says on page 40, you know and do not know what it is to act or suffer. You know and do not know that action is suffering, and suffering action. Neither does the agent suffer, because an agent is impersonal, it's supposed to just achieve its object. Nor patient act, because patient means to be passive. Patient means to let somebody act on you. Um, that's why it's called a price passion. He's letting the world have its way. A passion means to be under the influence of, I, I, I want that cake, whatever it is. Um, neither does the agent suffer nor the patient act. Both are fixed in an eternal action and eternal patience to which all must consent that it may be willed and which all must suffer that they may will it. That the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. That's Boethius' image that, that when you're one with the world, the world is turning. It's caught up in itself. The problem for any one of us that takes these things seriously is to move off that, that fate, that wheel of fate, the control that it has over us towards the center um, where time is still. It's that center point that represents one's union with God. Okay. To which all must consent that it may be willed, that is to give our wills so that God can will what he wants from all of us, which is to enter into Christ's life, and which all must suffer that they may will it. 
The chorus, there is no rest in the house, there's no rest in the street. I hear restless movement, it goes on. What is the sickly smell, the vapor, the dark green light from a cloud in a withered tree? The earth is heaving to parturition of issue of hell. This is a new element. It talks about the dark forces, the unholy ones, something infernal. This is the parturition of issue of hell. What is the sickly dew that forms on the back of my hand? Um, I can't, it's a putrid, it smells, it feels, there's something unholy everywhere. Um, the four tempters together, Doc made an interesting comment the other day when we were at home, she was thinking about it, she said, how'd you put it? When the, when the four tempters speak together, usually they speak individually, so we hear, but there are moments when they speak together. So it's interesting because it suggests a couple of things. One is they're completely united in what they're doing, even if they're different. It's like an unholy parody of the Trinity. They're together. Um, um, but the effect of hearing them in unison must have reinforced the sense of something oracular. That there's a heavy heaviness to what's going on. Um, how could you hear not without feeling something heavy and sententious and man's life is a cheat and a disappointment all things are unreal unreal or disappointing the Catherine wheel the pantomime cat the prizes given at the children's party the prize awarded for the English essay the scholar's degree the statement deck that is all the things that preoccupy us in time these are the things to which we give our lives all things become less real man passes from unreality to unreality that it, it's here. Let me, if I, I hope everybody's getting this. All of us go on in life treating intermediate ends as if they're final. Getting our kids to go out for lunch, you know, going to the park, whatever it will be, whatever it will be. Set a martyrdom next to those activities, and how important will those activities seem then? Well, most of us who, because I, I'm trusting most of us make those things too important in our lives. We, we treat them as if they're everything. We don't want to give them. We don't want to give them up. We don't want to lose them. Put a martyrdom in there. How are the ordinary things to which we give our lives going to look then? Um, <clears throat> the, one of the serious questions of the book um, are death and martyrdom. Everything in the book makes it clear that death is coming would come to that. Death, we cannot avoid it. In fact, let me put it differently. The death is with us all the time. Except we spend our <coughs> lives in distractions doing everything we can to put it off. The church keeps saying, memento mori, memento mori, memento mori, remember death. We're supposed to remember it. Everything in our culture does everything it can to get our minds off of it. And the other is martyrdom. Who wants to be a martyr? Um, so, We've got this grave sense of something happening. Then the three priests speak together on page 42. Oh, Thomas, my Lord, do not fight the intractable time. Do not sail the irresistible wind. They don't want this to come about. And then in this um, um, strophe, antistrophe, this back and forth between the chorus, the priests, and the tempers, they all join together um, in this choric moment 
Is it the owl that calls, the window bars made fast? And each one of them has its own specific concern. The priest, pr principal's concern seemed to be safety. The window bars fast? Does the watchman walk the trail? And it goes on. Then the chorus on 43, we have not been happy, my lord. We have not been too happy. We are not ignorant women. We know what we know and expect. We know what we must expect and not expect. We know of oppression and torture. We know of extortion. That is, there's nothing they haven't experienced. The old without fire, the child without milk, our labor taken away from us, our sins made heavier. We've seen the young man mutilated. There's nothing they haven't seen. But then they go on, and meanwhile we have gone on living, living and partly living, picking together the pieces, gathering faggots at nightfall, building a partial shelter, for sleeping and eating and drinking and laughter. God gave us always some reason, some hope, but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert. So they've experienced everything there is in the world. <coughs> There's nothing they haven't named. They know death. <coughs> but now they're saying, but now a new terror is upon them. Under doors and down chimneys, flowing in at the ear and through the mouth and the eye, God is leading us. God is leaving us. More pain, more pain than birth or death. Sweet and cloying through the dark air falls the stifling scent of despair. The forms take shape in the dark air. Whisper of leopard, footfall of padding bear. It's interesting that they're all through familiar things. Um, palm pad of nodding apes, square hyena, waiting for laughter, laughter, laughter. The lords of hell are here. They curl around you, lie at your feet, swing and wing through the dark air. O Thomas, save us, save us, save yourself, that we may be saved. Destroy yourself, and we're destroyed. As soon as the chorus finishes that, Thomas says, now is my way clear. So he's been facing temptations, and at this point that he says, now, he knows what to do. The last temptation is the greatest, to do the right thing for the wrong. Let me stop here for a second. What are we to understand when the chorus says, but now a new terror has soiled us? What's making this different? And what is it that makes Thomas say, um, just after the chorus speaks those words, um, now is my way clear? Um, the, the, some of the more pointed lines on the next page, in the middle of the page, he says, he's, he's contemplating the, pot, the options for himself. Servant of God has chance of greater sin and sorrow than a man who serves a king. Right? That's self-evident, yeah. Um, his betrayal will be greater because he carries a higher order of reality in him. He's trying to do justice to God. So if he goes bad, his sin's going to be worse than a politician who or you know, a soldier who's serving the king. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's a side note to what you're saying, but I, I never thought up until hearing this that you could designate your death to be a martyr. It seems like he's fixed mm -hmm. on that, like as if he'll pick the way he dies to become a martyr. And I always thought that a martyrdom was bestowed by the people left. By, by the people what? The people that are left that saw what you did unselfishly. It just seems like he's been fixated and continues to be fixated till his death of becoming a martyr. Yeah. And it's like he's gonna decide to be a martyr. Wait, wait a few, wait a few, because we're going we're, we're gonna to get to a scene where he deals with that directly, just in just a minute, David. Okay. Right. So I don't want to 
I don't want to preempt that and see what it does to your question. Okay. This is more off the subject, but to me, this this passage reminds me of an angel of death, like in uh, Egypt with Moses, and, you know, the, yeah. the firstborn. Yeah. Yeah. And if they put, they had to put the blood of blood. Right. Yeah. What makes that's interesting? Why? Why? What I, I, brings that to mind? Uh, I've got my own answer, but I want to hear yours because that's an interesting that's an interesting connection. Well, they, they said they've seen everything, you know, hardships and everything, but um, uh, I don't. And then the sleeping and eating and drinking after, or say. God gave us a reason for hope. Uh, I'm going to say, let me, in fact, let me. Under, well, not, I guess it says under the doors and down the chimneys and flying at the ear and the mouth and the eye. When you, you just see this spirit coming. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, that was. Yeah. David, I could come back. <laughs> I wanted him to hear this. 45, just after that line I read, Servant of God, things will go worse for him because he serves a higher order if he betrays it. For those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. That is, they'll be doing whatever they do for the wrong reason. It ends with um, Beckett saying, at the very bottom of 45, but for every evil, every sacrilege, crime, wrong, oppression, and the axe's edge, indifference, exploitation, you and you and you must all be punished, so must you. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. Now my good angel, whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's point. Now we have the, it, so it looks like he's decided. Um, the decision that made, I'm sorry, David's not here. Any comments up to this point? Um, is is, is um, Beckett satisfying his own concern? He knows, that, or he says, that one of the greatest temptations he faces is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Is there any indication here that he's doing that, that, he's, that what he's doing is for the right reason? Or is this the wrong reason? He thinks it is. Why, Linda, why do you say that? Well, from reading and knowing what I do of him through literature. I don't know yeah. that, but yeah, and it all leads to that. He thinks he's doing the right yeah. thing for the right reason. What do, you, what do you do with those lines? I mean, the, That's the, why he's giving his life. The pointed life, the lines here are, now my good angel whom God, appoint, whom yes. God appoints to be my guardian hover over the sword's points. Anybody want to paraphrase that? Well, to me that was... Beckett asking for God's help to make the, the decision for the right reason. Yeah. So I think he, I, I mean, almost even on page 44 where he says the last temptation is the greatest reason to the right deed for the wrong reason. It seems to me that when he says now is, now is my way clear, that's, that's his point that you know, I, I, I want to, to do this for the right reason. reason. Yeah. And I think he's, he's kind of led to that by the, by the previous uh, exchange with, with the chorus because 
it kind of reminded, made me think of, I guess is a better way to say it, how the apostles must have felt at the death of Christ. I mean, they kind of put all of their faith and hope in Christ, and the last thing they expected was for him to, to die. That must have been an, an incredible despair. Yeah. So you, you get the sense that these people had put a lot of hope in Thomas, and, and the fact that he could die would bring upon a state of despair that they have yet never witnessed. Yeah. And I think hearing that helped Thomas make the right decision. And I think, you know, the next next couple of pages kind of convinces me at least that yeah. he has decided that if he is to be a martyr, it's to be for the right reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And asking for the angel for guidance to make yep. sure that that happens. Yep. Yep. Let's do the interlude. I'm going to, if you don't mind, when um, David returns, I'd like you to just say, um, um, if he does return, what do you, what are you saying, Doc? I'm just laughing. When you ask me to repeat something that I've just said, and I think, uh... <laughs> What's that all about? Yeah, yeah right. I can't do it either. You already know that. I remember Linda asking me multiple times, Say that again? <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> to do, to do uh, that, no, it's, to do that, it's like you have to be conscious of what you're saying, why you're saying it. When I'm too busy saying it to think about it, you know, and then somebody says, "Now say that again." <laughs> There's, it's you so can't hard. Remember. I don't. I don't either. I'm I don't. No. <laughs> yeah. You're lost. Yes. <laughs> okay. Here, here he is. Waiting for me. Yes. yes. You, you are in trouble. Well, I know my bladder. <laughs> we don't want to hear your stories. Fred, here, Fred. To, we, we're, we're not there at the point I want to get to, but Fred had an interesting comment because I was, was asking the question how do we see um, Beckett's martyrdom when he, when he says, now my way is clear? Mm-hmm. And Part of what makes that statement intelligible is that he's considering doing, he's aware that he can do the right thing for the wrong reason. So he has that line where he says, now my way is clear, and he talks about that, and he, and he, he shows his awareness of the danger people face if they're serving God or king, because he said, um, you know, I'll read the lines again, I think, because you were leaving just as, but he says, Servant of God has a chance of greater sin and sorrow than the man who serves a king um, because they're serving a higher order, so if they betray it, their sin is worse. And then he says, um, for those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. So repeatedly he shows he's aware of how important the motives are in what you do. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And then the the lines ending that that show his resolve, this, these are his last words before we go to the interlude, are, he says, you, 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 indifference, exploitation, all of you must be punished, so must you. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. So being executed is not his concern. I shall no longer act or suffer to the sword's end. I think that is a metaphor for the political realm, threat of the king. Now my good angel, whom God appoints to be my guardian, hover over the sword's point. Fred, sorry, can you do what we've already acknowledged is not doable? Uh, well, I guess 
my sense was that with the lines, the temptation shall not come in this kind again to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Um, the, you know, the last temptation is the greatest treason, and the fact that he's asking God for help from the angel led me to believe that he had made the decision to look at martyrdom in the right in the right sense and was asking for for help to make sure that that he did do it if it if it were to come that he would be doing it for the right reason and I guess what came to my mind at least in the in the course exchange prior to that was kind of what helped him get to that point because it sort of at least reminded me to some extent of what the apostles must have felt with the death of Christ where you where you put all hope in 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 something someone and suddenly they're they're gone which is kind of the last thing you expected of someone who was going to lead you into the light yeah here we have a chorus who must have put a lot of hope and, and trust and we saw that during the course of the, the book in Thomas and and here he is about to give up his life there must have been a, a, a great deal of despair unlike anything they felt before associated with that and him hearing that despair and understanding it for what it was in my mind helped him find the center point he'd been yeah, looking yeah, for yeah, the still point and um, I want we still not we've got to get to this point that I think will more directly answer your question but um, but at one point when he's threatened by the knights they tell him to leave and this is just in response to what you said, he said, there's no way I'm going to leave. There's no way I'm going to abandon this people again because he's aware of, of the temptations the people face when they lose their leader, when he's not around. So he's not going to leave, um, which ensures his death again. Here, let's look at the interlude. Um, Thomas returned from France it was, I think, December 2nd, if that's if I remember the date. Yeah, December the 2nd. The, the, the interlude, which is Thomas's homily on Christmas morning, um, deals with the Christmas theme. And, the, and let me see if I can just make this brief. He's making the point in this Christmas homily that every day of the year, every day of the year, Mass is given. And every day of the year when people participate in the Mass, they're celebrating the death of Christ. When they take the Eucharist, they participate in the death of Christ. And they're, they do it with the understanding that they're, they're being given new life through that sacrifice. That's our belief when we take the Eucharist, that we enter more fully into his divine life. That's why I asked the question earlier, where are we when we take it? Do, do we, do we, are we aware that we actually step into a mystery? And that things are, are this, over, this idolatry, this whatever you want to call it, this overpowering desire to want to control everything in our lives, make them fit the way we want, you know. When we step away from the altar with uh, having taken communion, where are we, you know, when we... So, here he's saying, every day of the year, when we, when we receive the Eucharist, um, we're celebrating Christ's death. But on Christmas Day, we're celebrating Christ's birth. So on this day, the, the church, I, this to me is a profound, I'm like, on this day we're asked to bring 
two contradictory events together, birth and death, and understand that they should always be linked anyway for Christians. Always. So when we go up and participate in the Eucharist, we're celebrating Christ's death, but we know that we're being given new life out of it, or there's no purpose. We'd be pagans. We're just dying. So they're always to be connected anyway. Here, Thomas is making it explicit and saying, a new birth, a new birth receiving a new life, is an occasion for joy. We rejoice. Suffering a loss is a, is a cause, a reason for mourning. So on this day, we're asked to bring those two emotions that are opposite together. We're supposed to go to the depths of joy because that's God um, giving his life, entering, taking on our human nature, going through everything he did. So it should be an infinite joy. It should be limitless. There should be no limit on it. And at the same time, experience, give ourselves to an infinite mourning of grief because he's dying. So this is a, the strange paradox at the center of our faith. And that's the center of the... Davia. I think what you said in this last two or three sentences was very profound. And I'd be willing to bet money that 75% of any mass wouldn't ever think that. Yeah, and you're the one, I think it was, when we first came, you were talking to somebody, and I don't know if they were Muslim or non-Christian, and they said, if you really believe that Christ was in there, you'd go up on your knees. You'd prostrate. You said that. Yeah. Yeah, got and it. And I, I think going through that too often is just very rote. Yep. And then you saying what you just said, I am very profound. Yeah. I'm not saying that Thomas says Well, he said it. I'm just saying you're interpreting it. And if, if that was yep. presented to people, I think it would not be this just going up and getting it and going back and sit down and, okay, I've gone through this function. Yep. You take it for granted. I mean, it becomes, it's true. By the way, one of the, all, all great poets, you're, I hope you never tire of this, because all great poets understand, and most critics who are good enough to see it understand, that one of the values of poets, <laughs> you get tired of hearing, is that they have, they have to speak for a people under each generation. So they're the spokesman for a people. Frost was for us, or Eliot, or you know, Shakespeare in his time that what they do is renew language. They have to find a language appropriate for that time because we all know the circumstances of every age are different. Mm -hmm. And the, the temptation of every age is to slip into complacency, habit, get comfortable, take for granted. The poet is the one, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the poet is the one who reawakens us, who helps us rediscover language, here, who rediscovers the word, the word. It, the, one of the central things here. The word. He says that, that um, or those lines that I just read, the, the unspoken, the unspoken, the word that he was talking about. The poet is the one who gives life. It's like he's Christ is working through Homer, sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son, sing, goddess. It's appealing to the gods to speak a word that humans need to hear. Um, so, I think you're right, David. I mean, I mean, all of us are, are susceptible to us. And um, Becca goes on to, to speak. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to, I'm sorry. I was just going to no. say, and these discussions are timeless because as, right now, the, and has, the Pope has for the last 
year or more have been contemplating this text change to the Lord's Prayer that, um, that lead us not into temptation, instead should be changed to protect us from, shield us from temptation. The notion that God would never lead us to temptation has been causing this consternation, I presume, for 2,000 years. But it is something now under serious consideration that we may we get may get an edict at some point that we're changing the words. It's crazy to hear you say that because I'll, I'll, I'll contemplate that. How can he lead us into temptation? We here. Let me give an answer. This hold off. <laughs> We're going, we're going to this passage. It's interesting. The questions that you're raising, David, are, are he's going to deal with this. Anyway, let me just offer a thought on that. I don't want to get hung up with this because I want to stay with our text, but I've not, I've not had a problem with those lines at all. Christ um, um, had a mission and end. It was ultimately going to be the crucifixion, and God was leading him. And um, Debbie asked me one time a couple years ago. She said, "I've always struck, I don't remember. I don't know if we were doing something that referred to the prayer, the Lord's prayer, but she said, "I've always wondered what that meant. I've always understood the ending of that. Lead, lead us not into temptation." And I'm not sure. I mean, this is me. I'm not sure that this is right, but that's my understanding of. I hear him saying, "Lead us not into temptation." That is us asking that we not to have to face his last temptation. In the garden, bleeding, the, the, the scourging, the cross, that the, a martyrdom. It's so like what's going on here. And I'll get to it in a second. Um, that, because that would be, that was a God undertaking that, going through that ordeal, that temptation. Um, anyway. That's a very deep interpretation. Uh, Most kids who would say the Lord's Prayer would never think of it that Yeah. Way. Otherwise, I don't know. Because Christ knows we're all going to suffer. So to put that in at the end, anyway, let's let's stay here because I want to get to the, this question. Beckett goes on to say that Christ gave us a peace, but it's a peace unlike the world knows. It's not the peace that the world offers. So, Davis disciples. As we get complacent in our lives, we assume that the peace that we enjoy, comfort, freedom from struggles, all of that is the peace that we want. And what Beckett is making clear is that the peace that Christ offering us belongs to another order, and it may involve suffering, martyrdom. Um, he says on 49, and this begins to give an answer, David, to what you're asking. So it's interesting that, I mean, you're going to this point be, because it is a major point for the next five or six pages. Page 49. Beloved, we do not think of a martyr simply as a good Christian who's been killed because he is a Christian. For that would be solely to mourn. We do not think of him simply as a Christian who has been elevated to the company of the saints. For that would be simply to rejoice. And neither our mourning nor our rejoicing is as the world's is. Okay? Christ's peace is not the world's peace. A Christian martyrdom is never an accident. For saints are not made by accident. Still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint. So he's answering your question directly. He's not pursuing this. He did not pursue that. He's aware of that. Um, still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint, as a man willing to cont and contriving may become a ruler of men. A martyrdom is always the design of God for his love of men to warn them and to lead them to bring them back to his ways. It's never the design of man, 
For the true martyr is he who has become the instrument of God, who has lost his will in the will of God, and who no longer desires anything for himself, not even the glory of being a martyr. So we've seen him contemplate that option and reflect on it. And we're getting the fruit of that reflection now in his homily. He says, page 50, I have spoken to you today, dear children of God, of the martyrs of the past, asking you to remember especially our martyr, the blessed <coughs> Archbishop um, Elfedge, Elf because it's fitting on Christ's birthday to remember what is that peace which he brought. And because, dear children, I do not think I shall ever preach to you again, because it's possible that in a short time you may have yet another martyr, and that one perhaps not the last. I would have you keep in your hearts these words that I say, and think of them at another time, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, let's go to the, the next section. I want to get just through a couple of things here, um, and then stop and, and finish this next week. The second section begins, again, in the, in the bishop's, Archbishop's Palace, with the course. And what's given, again, on the part of the course, is some sense that a death permeates things, hovers over everything. There are hints of something. Um, Does the bird sing in the south? Only the seabird cries, driven inland by the storm. <coughs> what sign of the spring go down? The starved crow sits in the field attentive, and in the wood the owl rehearses the hollow note of death. What signs of a bitter spring, the wind stored up in the east? What at the time of the birth of our Lord at Christmas time? Is there not peace upon earth, goodwill among men? The peace of this world is always uncertain, unless men keep the peace of God. And war among men defiles the world, but death in the Lord renews it. Now hold on to that. Death in the Lord renews it. And the world must be cleansed in the winter, or we shall have only a sour spring, a parched summer, an empty harvest. That's a beautiful line to me, and I don't, I don't want to overlook it. Remember that the seasons are cyclical. They follow one another. So um, winter comes, it's followed by spring, spring's followed by summer, summer looks to fall, and then winter, and it, you know, it repeats itself. If you look at the cyclical seasons, this is profound. I, I don't know what to think of it. It's just profound. Um, winter always intimates, implies spring. It's always followed by a rebirth. So inherent is nature is some sense of the crucifixion. There are intimations of it there. Death will be followed by birth. As a matter of fact, we believe if winter isn't there, the trees won't undergo the preparation they need to to bring a new life. Things and, and his line here is perfect. His line is perfect. Um, and the world must be cleaned in the winter or we shall have only a sour spring. If things don't die back, it will, I mean, I can't imagine a good birth coming out of them. They'll get, um, what's the word, um, spoiled. They won't have the vitality of new life, you know. Um, so the, the cyclic, cyclical character of the seasons is always implied a resurrection, a rebirth. It's, um, the re <laughs> what Christ did is so in keeping with our nature. 
between an empty harvest, between Christmas and Easter, what work shall be done? And he describes the plowman going out and the work that he does. The air is clear and high, and voices trill at windows, and children tumble in front of the door. What work shall have been done? What wrong shall the bird song cover? The green tree cover? What wrong shall the fresh earth cover? We wait, and the time is short, but waiting is long. There's something wrong, even if even even with the cyclical return of seasons. Now, a, a number of figures enter um, carrying banters, and they're endroits um, that accompany them. I mean, they're, 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 there's endroits that the people are appearing. First is St. Stephen, and this is interesting now because this is, um, is this the fourth day? This is December 29th. This is the fourth day after Christmas. The first day after Christmas, the church celebrates the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Four days after, they celebrate the, the, the death of the Holy Innocents. So this, uh, this is so pointed. If you think about what the commercial do world does with Christmas, it does nothing but present joy and happiness and goodwill. And I think most of us know that the, that the one holiday that's the occasion for the highest rate of suicides in the year is Christmas. That doesn't puzzle me at all. I mean, the expectations are so great, and the presentation of the world is everybody have fun and joy. If anybody's left outside of that, they're going to feel miserable to a much greater extent than they're going to feel at any other time of the year. The disappointments, the frustrations, the sorrows are going to be greater. The church, in its wisdom, follows Christmas Day with the celebration of St. Stephen's martyrdom. He's the church's first martyr, right after Christmas. Three days later, um, the celebration of the death of the Holy Innocents, Herod killing the babes. Another death. So in the church calendar year, Christmas is followed by these events, okay? And the chorus is singing, what wrong? Um, what can we do to answer this wrong? And then we've got these um, three entrances. The first is St. Stephen. Now, here's one. Pay attention to this. So, um, the priest comes in with St. Stephen's banner. He says, Since Christmas, a day, and the day of St. Stephen, first martyr. And in italics, we get the, the um, speaking of somebody other than the priest. Princes, moreover, did sit and did witness falsely against me. A day that was always most dear to the Archbishop Thomas, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Princes, moreover, did sit. Um, who do those lines belong to? Princes, moreover, did sit. Princes, moreover, did sit. And did witness falsely against me. Christ. Christ. Also Stephen. Stephen, in some ways, too. Yeah. And it's going to be so for Thomas. Um, but notice the phrasing, since Christmas a day. Now watch, watch what happens. St. John comes in, or the second priest with the banner of St. John. Since St. Stephen a day and the day of St. John the Apostle. And now we get those spoken words again. In the midst of the congregation opening his mouth. This is John speaking about the word, the unspoken word, speaking. Is everybody clear? The unspoken word was Christ in eternity. He enters time and speaks. And John is the one in his gospel. He's so clear about the word. 
Um, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard declare unto you in the midst of the congregation. The third priest comes in with the, holy, the banner of the holy innocence and notice the phrasing. Since St. John the Apostle a day and the day of the holy innocence, out of the mouths of very babes, they sung as it were a new song, the blood of thy saints have they shed like water, and there was no man to bury them, avenge, O Lord, the blood of thy saints in Rome, a voice heard. Now, as soon as they do these phrases, since, the, since Christmas a day, since Stephen a day, um, since St. John the Apostle a day, goes through all of those. Next page, 56. Since the holy innocence a day, the fourth day from Christmas, so the three priests together say, Rejoice we all, keeping the holy day. First priest, as for the people, also for himself, he offereth for sins, he laid down his life for the sheep. The three priests say together, Rejoice we all, keeping the day. First priest, today. Second priest, today. What is today? For the days have gone. First priest, today. What is today? But another day, the dusk of the year. Another. Today, what is today? Another night and another dawn. Third priest says, What day is the day that we know that we hope for or fear for? Every day is the day we should fear from or hope from. One moment weighs like another. Only in retrospection, selection, we say that was the day. The critical moment that is always now and here, even now in sordid particulars, the eternal design may appear. Now the first nights come and they're going to make their charges against, but I want to stop here. What's all this business about the day and why this day? Why is it repeated like that? special because of a martyr or a saint, that every day should be looked at as that day. As which day? As a type of day where you give special homage for the, 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 the martyr, the, the saint. I, I just feel like what he's saying is we should feel every day the same way we did on the first day, which is when we were you know, celebrating the first martyr of the church. Why would that be a special day? Every day should be that way. That's a thought. I guess I guess I kind of looked at it as <clears throat> today is not just today; it's yesterday and tomorrow. That it's <clears throat> I mean, in 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 God's world, everything is happening all at the same time, and that you know when we look at today, it's not just today; it's what's come before and. What will come after? And what's the most important thing that's leading come into before, what's about to happen? Which is what? Well, you know, we have the the death of Christ, the death of um, Stephen. Stephen. We have the the death of of the babes, and what's and the innocence, and and what's coming is another death. Yeah, I think. Because every one of those is a feast day in some ways. I think the question that he's raising here is the same one uh, Boethius raised. It's a different, we've got a drama, not a 
philosophical exposition. St. Stephen the day, you know, John the day, the innocence the day. He doesn't explain anything, he doesn't say anything. I think we're meant to understand a day is only really a day when we stand in that day of martyrs, beginning with Christ. Because every time somebody's martyred, we're given life in him. We participate in it. I think the reason for the dread through this whole thing is that even if we accept death intellectually the way we do, we can talk about it, it's around us all the time. To be involved in a, immediately in a, in a martyrdom <coughs> takes us to a, a greater glory and a greater horror. You know, the, the, she, the, the chorus keeps talking about the lords of hell, and we've seen that there's some new terror, that this is a terror nobody's faced. It's asking whether, when we live our days, whether we really live them in the spirit of the renunciations that art, artists, martyrs offer us. What's interesting here is Thomas will say at the end the, to all the people, don't worry about this. They didn't come for you. They came for me. I think what we're meant to understand is he's undergoing this death and he's been called to it. I'll get to the words in a minute. He's been called to it, but the effect of it will be to cleanse all of us, that that's what martyrs do. We, we live in a world in which we so prize ourselves on our individual accomplishments that we think we don't need anybody or we love Christ. The, as, as Eliot presents it, martyrs give us life. They face ultimate terrors. Because if, if what he says is true, that this is not the design of man, it's the design of God, then the demons are after him. The, Lord, the phrase here is the lords of hell and evil ones, you know. But when, when a martyrdom is coming, you're dealing with dark forces. And the reason is because when somebody's called to a martyrdom, he's bringing a greater grace than most of us bring by what we do. Because he's sharing immediately in the cross of Christ. So... Let me just, here, I want to just, I didn't want to, I want to go to more directly. We're, this cuts into it. It's getting ahead, and I don't want to go there. I'm going to stop in just a minute, so. But um, when, the, when the priests try to protect Thomas from the knights, there's that line where Thomas says, um, you're in, they say you're in danger. And he, do you remember what his line is? I love it, on page 70. They, they say, I mean, the priests are frightened. <laughs> They're not martyrs. They want to get out of harm's way. At the top of 70, you'll be killed. Come to the altar, make haste, my Lord. Don't stop here talking. It's, it is not right. What shall become of us, my Lord, if you're killed? What shall become of us? He, they're just repeating what everybody's repeating. The chorus, all the people, they don't want to be without their shepherd. Thomas, peace, be quiet. Remember where you are, what's happening. No life is sought here but mine. I'm not in danger, only near to death. Why does he say that? I'm not in danger. Danger would be going to hell. Yeah, if, it's, if, if he had done something wrong, he'd be in danger. He's made peace with his will, he, he's giving his will to God, there's no danger for him. The danger isn't death. We treat death danger because it's a sign that we're too preoccupied with the world. We're caught up, we're caught up in intermediate causes. They define our life. If that's so, when death comes, are we ready? Thomas says there's no danger. 
He's thinking on a higher plane. The, the other ones are about Absolutely. doing what you said. They're worried about losing their Yeah. Whatever. Go right. back to 69. Wait one second. Go back to 69 now. Um, there, and I wanted to, I'm, we're going to start, we're going to go back a few pages and we'll pick up here when we meet next week, but there's a, um, there's a passage um, in, the, in the Bible, you know, when Christ is on the cross, when the soldiers say, if you're God, save yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's a passage similar to that here. So it's, there's that palimpsest reading again. I think we're here this, but we're also meant to hear the soldiers. And if you remember the chorus, they're talking about how death has always been around them the whole of their life. And on page 69, um, they're continuing that vein. Um, when age and forgetfulness sweeten memory, only like a dream that has been, they will seem unreal. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. We don't, we tend not to deal with death. We put it off. The priest, my lord, you must not stop here to the minister through the cloister. No time to waste. They're coming back, armed, armed. Those of you who remember Hamlet, if you remember the graveyard scene, we talked about this. When Hamlet, he just returned from the channel crossing, he's back and wants to act, and he's in the graveyard, and the, and the, the, the what do you call him, the, the guy who's the graveyard digger. He's, he's digging up the grave, and he, he, he's digging up the grave of Yorick, who was the court jester who was alive when Hamlet was a kid. And Hamlet remembers be, being on his shoulders. And it's a profound meditation because it makes Hamlet aware that death has been with him. He says, death has been with me from the minute of my birth. So it's an important meditation for what he's about to do. And we've seen that in, in Thomas. Um, so here he says, bottom 16, all my life they have been coming these feet. I mean, that could almost be out of Hamlet. But it's at the center of the church, memento mori. We're supposed to hold on to it. I have waited death, or I've waited. Death will come only when I'm worthy. And if I'm worthy, there's no danger. I have therefore only to perfect my will. So this is not a man seeking martyrdom. Remember the homily said, men don't do this. A martyrdom is show you're either an instrument or not. You have to decide whether God's using you or not. Um, if I'm not worthy, there's, or if I am worthy, there's no danger. I have therefore only to make perfect my will going over to that line, they say, let us go out, you know, and Thomas says again, no life here is sought but for mine, and I'm not in danger, only near to death. What an extraordinary heroic statement. He, he, he's got this image of the angel, you know, on, his, on the sword point. He's going to his death. Here's the extraordinary thing, and we'll see this when we come back. If you put this in perspective, it seems to me it gives a whole new perspective for martyrdom because we, we tend to put the saints up there and talk about them at masses. This shakes me. I mean, it, what it's saying is um, when we call to mind a saint, we should be calling to mind the sacrifice of Christ because they're doing something um, that involves all of us and that offers blessings to the rest of us. In the same exact way that Christ did in his death, that's what martyrs are doing. And if we don't see that, if it doesn't change the way we live a day, so that on these days of saints we're actually in some way participating in the deaths, you know, that they had to give themselves up in something, whatever kind of sacrifice they made, physical or life, you know, whatever it was.
um, that we're not living in time. It's like the chorus saying, living and not living. We're not living in a day. Because if we are, we should be going back to that still point. That peace at the center with Christ. Because it's, it's Christ's peace, not the peace of the world. The comfort, the, lug, you know, the, the money, the wealth, the prosperity, and all those things. So at the center of this play, I think is this, God, it's an, I mean, it's almost like a sacramental gift that what Eliot is showing us is this time outside of time or time inside of time where what's going on is God is working in the world through saints. Graces are being offered to us through what they do. As he said, I mean, as Thomas said, in the, as a way to help us to help us on our journey to get closer to Christ, get closer to that still point. Let me stop here. Any, just because I am always late. I want everybody to look at the time today. <laughs> Jay, did you have? I was just in that throat, something like this, but a year, what was a year or so ago when Cardinal Vigano made his accusations about the church scandal and all the revelations, whatever. He then announced, or was let, that he was going into hiding because he felt his life was in danger, which I have heard more than one person say, they don't make martyrs like they used to. <laughs> Peter Kreef, Peter Kreef, Peter who is a philosophy professor, I think at Boston University, wrote a, a Summa the Summa, I don't know if any of you, but I've recommended it to people. It's, it's a condensed form of the Summa with notes, and Peter Kreef is absolutely clear. He's a, a, he's a Catholic on the trail, you know, giving talks and um, writing books. And this one book is so good because his notes are, they're, they're clear to a sixth grader. He's just, in sixth grade language, he's explaining some of the harder things in Thomas. And it's condensed. It's just, you know, it's taking three volumes and reducing it down to 150 pages of chosen um, questions. But it, some, one of his lectures, I, 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 he was reported to say, our age is an age for martyrs. That there's no way to live in this age and not be because it is so, you know, who, who, whoever the pope was that said this is a um, culture of death, that there's nothing going, around, going on around us that isn't directed to that end, everything about our culture is so foul. To live in this culture with any integrity takes you close to, to martyrdom or involves you directly in it. Because you can't go along with this culture. It's just too awful. Elliot is in this play, he's showing us a chorus, priests and knights, the orders of that culture, all implicated in some way in this, what's happening. And I think it's, it's raising the question, how well do we make renunciations in our life and participate in the life of Christ? So I'll call attention to that through what happened with Thomas. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that, that the whole scene, the exchange between the priests and Thomas at that point, kind of reminded me of the scene with Peter and Christ, where Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier. And, and, and I don't remember the exact words that Christ says, but it's in essence, that's not what I taught you. 
and you get the you get an appreciation for how differently the martyr sees what's going on, what 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 Christ saw, what was going on, and what the the people around them right. see. Right. And you know right. we we kind of suffer that right. same same right. problem. Right. It's another order of reality, and we're asked to make our judgments by it. In fact, one of the lines in here, I think it's yet to come, will Thomas will say, you measure everything by results, because it's what the world does. And so they're, they're judging what he's doing mistakenly. They don't see, because what he's doing relates to a higher order. And the question is, so the apophatic, it's not visibly present, but he's making us aware of it. You know, and what's going on, and are, and and I said this. I mean, it gets getting ahead. I'm just repeating what I will say next time we meet. But you know, when the knights come out, they're going to make their excuses, and one of the knights is going to do it in a way to implicate us. So, we're, so where are we? Where are we in this stuff? Where do we stand? Um, anyway, do we? So, do we stand in that higher order, making a place for mystery in our lives, or do we? Tough questions. Bless you all for doing this. Bless you all for doing this. You guys have a good week. Start Dostoevsky because it's it's not easy. And remember what I said. Don't let the names hold you up. Just keep moving forward. You know. Uh, just yeah. Sorry? <laughs> before. Before, before, yeah. He's in the 19... God, I can't even remember his... He's writing before Elliot. I'm surprised we didn't do this one right after I said I'm surprised we didn't do Myrtle's Murder in the Cathedral right after Boethius. Right after what? Boethius. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh. I've been trying to take things uh, chronologically. Yeah, but I know you're so keen. I mean, you're, you see that so well. I don't know how well I see it. I keep, I keep no, no, I mean, you, because you, you've said a lot of things that show how aware you were of it. It was a, it was a great session today. Today? Yeah. Why is that? I, I, I think we we really touched on the very essence of what this class was has been all about for the last three years for me. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. Wow. So, wow. It is pretty profound. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's so, it's so the center of our faith. We just don't know it anymore. We can go to church every Sunday and, and just be totally unaware of what's really happening. You know, you're so caught up in what's going on in your world that you just, you can miss it all. Yeah. Okay, Lord, you need to slow things down so I can concentrate. One comment was You've got a rowdy group here. 
was it honest with I think so. We just um, we have there's birthdays. Of, we have three grandkids' birthdays in February. Two are in Houston. So we don't know now at this point when they're going to be celebrated. It's so abstract. So we usually try to go, <laughs> but we have no clue. So yes, we are around. Actually, two in February. Every person's got to find that for himself. Um, particularly the laws of God's will. This weekend we had them all. Uh, they were because we came in. Yeah, I mean you're asking a, because I mean take the simplest things in our life. Buying a house, or you know doing something with your son. I mean, how many of us actually ask ourselves what we're doing in some mundane thing? Thirty-four hours. Doing what he's doing. And the second thing is, I think the point of the book is who will not be here. That I mean, are, are we doing? Any of us? He's going to be all worried about it. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, that was sweet. That was sweet. Yeah. As where were we? We were, we were loving or, or performing yeah, justice. I mean, answer, whatever it is. And how do you yeah, know in a concrete case? So, I seem to be good at that. Well, no, I wanted, How are you? I wanted to say that yeah. so, without your insight, okay, interpretation, and most of us here, and there's a couple of people like Tom, Kelly, and John, they're very insightful, but I don't know a lot. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Come here. Yeah. No. Might we going to see her for the next two months? Well, you might here and there. Just be sure you tell her what she's missing. Oh, I know. I know. And I hope you talk with her about these things. No, I do. I do. But see, she's wired differently than me. And I'm not saying it doesn't affect her, but it affects me very deeply. Because I'm I'm trying to make changes in my own life. But anyway, Wait, hold on. Before you go, Fred said after class, this is I mean this is interesting to me. Said he said this is one of the most profound classes you have. Oh, because he said I mean I did this is Fred. Mm -hmm. He said what what you did today, and it's not me. It's Ellie, but yeah. he said what you did in a sense got to the core of what we've been doing for four years yeah. right here. Sure. It's really interesting to oh, it is. see it, it that is. way. Yeah. It is. yeah, I was telling him his insight and his interpretations, <laughs> I, I mean, me personally. I'm no, not talking no, about no, it's me in the same way. I just, no, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the fact is, I mean, you know, the, um, the still point has always been, you, you gave us a page on the still point because it was part of your chapter. And that was so beautifully done. It was so much like Merton and uh, contemplation. Is that's where you go to the still point, and you know yep. the false self is on the perimeter. Yep. The true self is in the center. Yep. And it's just it, it, you know it's said different ways, but it's like, but who gets exposed to that? Yeah. Yep. Who gets exposed to there's a 